We are going to be in the book of Philippians again this morning, chapter 1, verses 12 through 18. Uh, you'll see it on the screen behind me. It should also be on the, the bulletin if you grab one on the way in. The living God speaks in his living word. I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel, so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. This is the word of the Lord. I don't know if you've ever introduced yourself or like a question has been asked of you, what's your favorite movie? And it's, it's like, isn't that such a hard question to answer? Like, it's, I've, I've always found it impossible. Like, I mean, I, I can think of a few movies that I really like, but having a favorite movie is, is really hard to pick. Uh, but I, uh, I think I do have a favorite movie. I was, I was going to introduce this as my favorite prison movie, but it's actually just my favorite movie. And it's, uh, it's The Shawshank Redemption. Um, the, the Shawshank Redemption, it's, it's, uh, for those, it came out in the 90s. Uh, for those, those of you here who haven't seen it, it takes place in, uh, it takes place in the oh, mid-20th century, like, it, like the, the 50s and 60s, in a New England prison, this prison in Maine called, the Sha- called Shawshank Prison. It's this, this, this cold prison behind giant, wall, giant gray walls. There's just darkness, shadows, and uh, it, it follows the, the main character. His name is Andy Dufresne. And he's a, an innocent man uh, who was imprisoned. He was imprisoned for, for killing his, his wife who had been cheating on him. He, he, and uh, he's imprisoned un, um, unjustly. And even though he's, he's been imprisoned unjustly, throughout the movie you see that Andy is a, a source of hope for his fellow prisoners and for the other guards. And for the guards, just from scene to scene, he's this, this source of light, of, of unexpected hope. And there's one particular scene that has always stuck out to me, an iconic scene in the movie, uh, where Andy, who's, he's been a really well-behaved prisoner, so he's been given certain uh, privileges as the movie goes on, and uh, the guards know him and trust him and like him, and uh, the guard who is watching him in like, the central admin room for the prison goes, goes to the bathroom, locks the door, uh, and Andy goes, locks, locks the guard in, and he takes this, this record player um, that is playing this Italian opera song, and he takes it over to the microphone that, to blast throughout all the speakers in the, the entire prison. And he, he blasts this Italian opera song through all the cold, tall walls. And all of the prisoners and the guards, just, they're just like fix, transfixed by like this beautiful noise lofting through, through the prison. It's this amazing scene of, of, of hope coming and the beauty of hope in in a, a desolate, bleak place. Uh, the, the narrator for the movie is, his, is Andy's best friend, Red, who's another prisoner. And he says, uh, as this scene is happening, he, Red says, it was like some beautiful bird flapped into our drab little cage and made those walls dissolve away. And for the briefest of moments, every last man at Shawshank felt free. Um, 
in the Shawshank Redemption, every prison movie has an escape, uh, an escape scene that happens. Like that's that that is part of the movie. Like you figure that the title Shawshank Redemption has to do with the escape scene, and in a lot of ways it it does. But the more I reflect on the movie, I think this is why it's one of my favorite movies. The more I think about the redemption in Shawshank Redemption, it's not only about the literal escape, but it's about how there's this prisoner who has contagious hope and joy where Shawshank, he never really is fully imprisoned. And, and, uh, and he, he, he just, how he's not defined by the walls and the terms of his joy is coming from something deeper than his circumstances. Very similar to the way Mike opened us this morning. Um, in our passage today, we find the Apostle Paul, similar to Andy Dufresne, imprisoned, but filled with a contagious hope. And even with a joy in the midst of the most trying of circumstances, in the most tremendous adversity. So I'm going to take us through this passage, and I'm going to draw your attention towards a few a couple H words, hindrances and hopes. Um, what are, what's hindering Paul that we see in this passage? What are the hopes, the sources of hope that are bubbling up as he's, as he's in prison? And I'm going to conclude by reflecting on how Paul points the Philippians and to us towards his source of hope and joy. So first off, the, the hindrances that Paul is experiencing in his mission that he highlights in this passage. Um, let's remember, why, why is this letter written? Um, for those of you who are joining us for the, the first time, we're in the Paul's letter to the Philippians uh, this fall. Uh, the Philippian church, who loves Paul a lot, they, they find out that he's been imprisoned. Uh, Paul helped plant the, the church in Philippi. They found out he's imprisoned, and they love him so much, they send this guy named Epaphroditus to, uh, with a big financial gift to support, support Paul, encourage him, and to check in on how he's doing. They're concerned for his welfare. And this section that we just read is Paul starting to give the Philippian church an update just on how he's, how he's doing in response to their concern for him. Uh, this, this section of the letter, it reads kind of like a missionary update letter. I don't know if you all have, if, if you all have received those before. Uh, my family, we support uh, a couple uh, missionaries who are actually members of this church. Uh, Hannah Giari's served abroad and also served in college ministry for a number of years. Uh, Paul Carey is serving abroad in Romania. He was on staff here for, for a time, and, and now he's doing college ministry in Romania. Like, I get letters, our family gets letters from Hannah and from Paul maybe once a month or every quarter with updates on, hey, what's going well in the mission field? Uh, what's, where do they need prayer? Where are they facing, facing challenges? This is Paul's like, missionary update section to him talking about how he's doing to this church that's concerned about him. And he highlights a couple hindrances that he's experiencing in his ministry. The first one, of course, is his imprisonment. Uh, though it's, it's Paul's uh, imprisonment is probably not as terrible as Andy Dufresne's in the Shawshank Redemption. He's not like in solitary confinement or anything. He has communication with the world. You know, he writes this letter, after all. Uh, he, he has, he's been sharing the gospel with guards. He's been in, interacting with Timothy and Epaphroditus. Um, he is still isolated and in chains. And it's, it's kind of hard to overstate how much of a hindrance this would have been in, in, in Paul's life and what his life's work had been. As you read through Paul's story through the whole New Testament, you see that much of the power of his ministry, it comes from his personal presence. He, he, uh, Paul has a ton of friends. He kind of has like a gang that follows him around, that he sends to these different corners of different churches. Like, 
Barnabas at first, Timothy, Titus, Luke, Trophimus, Tychicus, Aquila, Priscilla, Phoebe. Like he's, he's, he's got this, this group of people that he's just spent a ton of time with that then that go, they go with him to places or they, he sends them to minister to, to be ministers elsewhere. That's one thing to know about Paul. He, just, he has all these close friends. Another thing about Paul and his missionary journeys uh, before he's imprisoned is he traveled a ton. Some estimate that between his three missionary journeys that he would have traveled over 10,000 miles by foot, which is bananas. He would spend a year here, plant a church here. He would go spend another year and a half over there, strengthen that church, plant another church over here. So what we have, we know Paul from his letters, but the story behind the letters is that Paul's physical presence, along with his gang of friends, planted a seed that would change the world. And now this guy, this guy whose his powers come from his presence, from his friendships, who's planted and strengthened all these churches, he's now in chains. He can't leave the room. He's isolated from his friends. The very source of this guy's power has been zapped. It's a major hindrance. And you have to, you can feel some of the concern from, the, from why the Philippians would write to him. Like, what's going to happen to these churches? There's been conflict in them. We've see, we see that in the New Testament. These churches are, they're on... The, the footing is not solid beneath their feet in so many ways. Are they going to survive without Paul strengthening them, without him visiting them? The first hindrance is his imprisonment. The second hindrance is that there are rivals of Paul who are preaching Christ out of envy and selfish ambition. You can see this in verse 15. Paul says, Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry. He then goes on in verse 17 in more detail. He says, they proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. Who are these people? Who are these opponents? It's kind of a tricky interpretive question because we, we really don't know much about them. We know besides that they would have been folks who are part of the church where Paul is imprisoned. So presumably in Rome, um, who have been prompted to preach against some particular emphases that Paul had because he's been imprisoned. So likely these are, uh, these are leaders in the church in Rome who they weren't vibing with parts of Paul's message. Paul like, really liked to hit the note of the, the, the union of Jews and Gentiles in Christ. We know that was a challenge for the church in Rome because that's why Paul wrote the letter to the Romans. So perhaps they were using this, this occasion of his imprisonment to kind of score points against him. Uh, they, now, these weren't, they weren't leading people astray to, into like outright heresy or to other faiths or away from Christ. They weren't doing that uh, because there are other times where rival preachers against Paul are doing that, and Paul is not nearly so easygoing about it. But these are likely former friends of Paul's. They're beating him while he's down. It's, it's like the, the nearest thing I could think of is if... Uh, <laughs> it would be like if, if uh, Pastor Jose from Urban Worship Center were to be imprisoned or detained in some way, and I were to stand up here on a Sunday morning and were to say, like, well, that's because God's judging him because of his bad theology. And, like, we're to, and we're to you know, try to be bringing in folks towards, like, particular emphases of, of our message, which is the same, ultimately, as his message, for sure. But we're to try and, like, she, uh, steal sheep in the midst of um, a, a brother who's been so faithful 
um, being imprisoned. Like it's, it's um, yeah, it's, it's pretty awful. <laughs> to sum it up, Paul's vocation is really threatened by his imprisonment. All that, like the power of his ministry is hindered. His reputation is in, je- is in jeopardy now too. His rivals are defaming his name. So those are, and yet he's filled with hope and joy we see in this passage. So what are, his, what are some places where, where there's hope, where hope is bubbling up for him? What are the reasons for it? Verse 12, he opens with hope. He says, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. The Philippians wrote to him because they were concerned about his imprisonment. And he begins by reassuring them by saying, actually, my imprisonment has, God's used it to push the gospel forward in ways that, he wouldn't have, that wouldn't have happened otherwise. And he presents two main reasons for hope, two hopeful things that he sees happening, two fruits. One is that the gospel is spreading among the imperial guard, um, and the other one is brothers growing in boldness. So that first one, of hope, the gospel is spreading among the imperial guard. He says in verse 13, it's become known throughout the whole imperial guard that my imprisonment is for Christ. So Paul's the guy who he gets locked up and he's in chains and he's right next to these guards and he's like, you guys know what this means? Captive audience, you guys have to listen to me share the gospel. You and all your buddies. I guess that's, that's probably the kind of airline passenger that Paul would have been. It's like, we're stuck next to each other. Guess what you're going to hear? Me talk about Christ. Take those headphones out. You can almost hear the, the giddiness in Paul's writing. Like, he's like, do you guys realize? Do you realize that because of my imprisonment, all these guys have had to hear me, hear me talk about Christ? And, his, and Paul's sign-off at the end of Philippians, he kind of has this, this sly, this sigh farewell to, the, to this. He says, uh, to the Philippian church, he says, all the saints greet you, especially those of Caesar's household. There's almost like a wink in that. Almost like, hey, God's used my imprisonment to get the gospel into the very center of power in the Roman world. The Praetorian Guard, like the, the secret service around the emperor, and the, 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 the gospel's infiltrating Caesar's household. It's like, can you believe that? It's crazy. So clearly this is a man, again, remember how the, just the mountain of a hindrance that his imprisonment is. Clearly this is a man who receives what God gives, even the hardest of circumstances, with expectation. He receives it with expectation. He almost asks, like, he asks, like, what is God doing in the midst of being imprisoned? Do you hear the difference between that? What, like, what is, what is God doing versus what is God doing? Same question, but two totally different questions. One filled with expectant hope and joy, the other with anger and entitlement. Paul sees God as an artist. What's he doing? Instead of seeing him as a vending, God as a vending machine. What's he doing? The second hope, the boost in hope that he has, is that other brothers have been more moved to boldness, seeing Paul's imprisonment. And you can see why they would if this is how he's responding to his imprisonment, right? Right? Verse 14, he says, Most of the brothers 
having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Others in the church in Rome, they see Paul's expectant hope in the midst of adversity, and they respond by taking up the mantle and preaching themselves. It's like, hey, if Paul's brave enough to continue preaching the gospel in chains in the face of death, maybe I can stick my neck out too. These folks, they're inspired by Paul. Another thing likely going on with this is they've probably learned that Paul's not indispensable. Like the message of Christ, the church is continuing on even though like this, this brave, courageous, once-in-a-lifetime leader is in chains. Like things are moving forward. And uh, it, or this, just this point, it reminded me, it, it, uh, I feel like I got to see this in, in action some just in the our life of our own church. Uh, for those of you who are new or visiting, um, just kind of a window into things going on in our church right now. Um, I had a meeting on Friday night with our church's transition team. Uh, the transition team is a, a group of, you know, some officers and uh, lay, lay people in the church who are guiding our church in the midst of uh, the pastoral transition that our church is in the middle of right now. And, and it was it was, a, it was a fun meeting in, for me in part because I didn't have to talk very much. I have to talk, you know, I talk a lot. It's great to hear other people talk. And um, it was encouraging for me to, to hear like these leaders, this team, say like, hey, God has given us amazing lead pastors in the history of our church. We've learned from them. But it was, I could like just feel in the room like the folks there, they were energized to see that Christ continues to build his church and this church, even though those lead pastors aren't here anymore. It's like, hey, those, those, as, as we love those guys, we're so thankful for them. Also, they didn't hold the cards. They're not the future of the church. They're not the bedrock of the church. And like, Christ is, and, and we are, and we can take up mantles and carry things. For the church in Rome, and this is what I, what, what I heard on Friday night, it's like, there was growing, the growing ownership growing and growing sense of mission. And it was because Paul was imprisoned. Because, because the, the brave, courageous, once-in-a-lifetime leader was, was not there. So even, and even though that there are brothers who are preaching against Paul, there are others, many, who are continuing his legacy. There's a hopeful future for the church in Rome. Can you see how this message would not only be reassuring to the church in Philippi who's receiving this letter, but would be inspiring? It's like the very thing that had us concerned, your imprisonment, it's actually being used by God to bring the imperial guard to Christ and to enliven the church in Rome. Can you see how the Philippians would look then at their own challenges and circumstances? And they would say, maybe the adversity we're facing isn't pointless either. Let's look at the, the source of Paul's hope. We've talked about the hindrances, the reasons for hope. Let's look at the sources of hope. Um, where does Paul's hope come from? Um, in the face of his reputation being defamed, his vocation being halted, his life possibly taken, how can he end this passage by saying, I rejoice? Why? Don't you want this kind of hope, this kind of joy, this kind of giddiness even in the face of such challenges. Don't you want this kind of resilient joy to face all the challenges that you're facing, to be imprisoned and to say, what is God doing? Um, where's Paul getting it from? 
if, if you're here, not a Christian, or you're investigating the faith, maybe wrestling about whether or not Christianity is true, it's like it, there's, there are two questions. It's like, is Christianity true? And is Christianity good? Um, and sometimes folks will think it's true but not good, or that it's good but not true. I wanted, for those of you who are maybe here and investigating that question, I wanted to look at, look at is Christianity good for a minute? Um, can we agree that it would be good if we lived this way? If we face suffering in our lives like opportunity and a place for hope instead of just drudging misery, wouldn't our lives be richer? Like, I, I don't want my sons, I have uh, two sons um, and, um, and a third on the way, two sons, ages four and three. I don't want my sons one day to remember their years with me as their dad and for them to say, man, we sure had challenges, you know, there were challenges in our lives growing up and dad, he faced them by always being on edge, anxious and cranky all the time. I don't want them to remember that. I want them to remember, even in the hardest of years, dad was honest about it, but he was hopeful. He was joyful. He was filled with laughter. He was all, always had his eyes to see how God was using our troubles in ways beyond what we could see. That's what I want them to remember. Don't we want that too? So what was the secret to Paul's joy? And how can you get it today? How can you have this same joy when you face the Shawshank-like stone walls, the chains, the gray, the shadows of your own life, the bad news that you didn't want? It's this. It's union with Christ. And Paul will talk about this more in other passages besides this one, but it's very much working in the background of what's going on in this passage. Paul trusts, like, Paul trusts that Christ is going to be triumphant no matter what. We, he, he said, we can see this plain faith in verse 18. He says, Whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. Paul has this simple faith that, hey, in the end, Christ is going to win. He'll take messages that are proclaimed by crooked messengers, like these, these rivals, and he'll make the path straight. But more than that, Paul knows that he's united with Christ. He says in the, the, a few verses ahead of this passage, he says, to live is Christ and to die is gain. His very life belongs to Christ. Even dying is gain because Christ's death was gain and he's united with Christ. Paul says, like, I count everything as loss compared with the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus. And Paul even goes so far as to say, like, my suffering, like, in my sufferings, I get a share in Christ's sufferings. He says that in chapter 3. So Paul has a hope that Christ will triumph in the end, and he also has joy in the midst of his sufferings because he's united with Christ. He knows that Christ's sufferings weren't pointless. They weren't meaningless. They were used for the salvation of the world. Paul, died, or Paul knows that Christ died on the, the cross, the worst of suffering, the worst kind of abandonment, and that led to the forgiveness of sins and new life for the entire world. And there was resurrection on the other side. Paul trusts that the, since he's in Christ, the same will be true of his own adversity, his own challenges, even though he doesn't know exactly how. Think about it this way. 
what's the worst that could happen to Paul? They could keep him rotting in prison. Paul wins. If that happens, guess what, fellow airline passengers? I'm going to tell you all about Christ. Keep me rotting here. The opponents could, they could kill his reputation. Paul wins in that scenario because his reputation belongs to Christ. Christ's reputation was torn down too, by the way. So actually, Paul gets to know Christ more in his reputation being defamed. The guards could kill him. Paul wins, if that happens, because he gets to share in Christ's death. He gets to die the same way Christ died. And he gets to know Christ more, which is his deepest joy. Brothers and sisters, I pray that we can live with this kind of faith, this kind of joy and hope that comes from the being united with Christ, knowing his triumph, knowing that our sufferings aren't meaningless. Um, and I want to give an example of how I think this could work in the life of our own congregation. For those of you who are new and visiting, let this, this is again going to be kind of a window into something that, that is uh, a regular thing in the life of this church. Um, so you, you may not feel this like this part doesn't apply to you, but I think you'll learn more about our church as I give this example. Um, in the life of Liberty River Wards, you know, you can count on a few things. You can count on, uh, you know, death, taxes, and your friends moving away. Your friends moving away. Uh, what if we viewed our friends moving away uh, the same way Paul views his, ch- his chains? This thing that's been, a, you know, an immense source of pain and, ch- and, ha- and hardship for many of us. What if we viewed every time a friend moved away as God giving us a new opportunity to befriend or disciple someone new? Someone that we'd maybe overlooked. Um, and this is what people who are new and showing up in this congregation, what they, they, what they long for, by the way, to be welcomed into the life, of, the life that you've experienced. And you can only offer that to folks who are coming through these doors if you open yourself in hope and joy instead of us closing ourselves off because of our pain. And I know that like using this particular example is it's like, it's setting us up, setting you all up for your hearts to be broken to, to, to consider that question. More friends will move. Your heart will be broken. Um, I had a brief conversation with uh, Larry Walker this past week, and uh, we were talking about hearts being broken, and he had this great line. He's like, do you know what kind of hearts break? Healthy ones. Ones that love people. Hearts that aren't like the, uh, you know, um, like the Grinch whose heart is this big. Hearts that love people break. If Paul can, can be can treat being chained to the, to the Praetorian Guard as this amazing opportunity, then I think we too can have hope and joy when friends move and say, God's inviting us to, to love new people, to love people we hadn't loved before. I think if Paul can reach that point with being in chains, I think we can too with this really hard thing. And don't hear me saying that like, Mike did a great job walking this line in our call to worship. Don't hear me saying in that that your pain is isn't real or important. It is real. 
it is important and is never to be ignored. But if we let our pain set the terms for our joy, we'll be miserable. Don't you know people who are like that? We'll always be victims. We won't be joyful. Our hearts won't be free to love. Also, please don't hear this as, as like, just try harder. Staple that smile to your face. It's not that. If we let our hard work and our effort set the terms for our joy, we'll end up exhausted and discouraged because it will grow bitter and resentful. Why aren't others trying as hard as I am? Instead, like Paul, I'd invite you to let Christ set the terms for your joy, for your hope. To know that Christ will triumph. A day will come. A day will come when all of our friends who are in Christ, like, we'll get to be with them for forever. For forever. This life of goodbyes, these seasons of goodbyes, is temporary because Christ has triumphed over death and will be resurrected in him. And we're also united with Christ. If we feel like our friends have left us, then we know Christ more than we did the day before because Christ's friends left him. And because Christ's friends left him at his hour of greatest need, um, he was able to save the world. It was part of the plan. So we know him more. And if we know more, if we know, our, that, like, if we know Christ more in that pain and that loss, that means that we know, knowing, knowing Christ is knowing the source of our deepest life and joy more. It's the purpose for us being here. Do you trust that God, God who used the story arc of a guy being abandoned by, by his friends to save the world, um, do you trust that there could be such a story arc for you too in the midst of this thing that's really painful? Um, Christ, Christ is the joy that can weather even the worst of storms. Christ is the source of hope that can endure no matter how bleak and how high the prison walls. In the name of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, amen.